You know, most people in the world know something about God. But only some of those people have truly encountered God. Isn't that true? What I mean is people who have facts and stats and intellectual awareness about God are a dime a dozen, but people who are captivated by what they see about God, well, they're a little harder to come by. Because the question is, what happens to a man? What happens to a woman who encounters the towering majesty of God found in the pages of Holy Scripture? What happens to a man, what happens to a woman when they behold the sheer, raw holiness of the God who cannot be tamed? Of the God who spoke galaxies into existence. What happens to a life when they stand at the bottom of Mount Everest and they peer up into the staggering, unapproachable heights of who God is? What happens to the soul who has a coma-inducing, heart-palpitating, who sees the beauty of God in the pages of Scripture? What happens to a man when they, and, or a woman when they stand vulnerable and naked before the God who never had a beginning? I'll tell you what happens to them. They live like John Calvin. They live like John Calvin lived. Because here is a man with centuries of enemies and critics who hate him. Here is a man with centuries of admirers who love him. Here is a man who knew that God exists not only to be examined and studied and analyzed, but a God who exists to be worshipped and adored. Here is a man who lived with a profound God consciousness, who, who knew that no matter where he was, he was standing on holy ground because God is there. You understand, John Calvin was lots of things in his tumultuous life. He was a lawyer. He was a teacher. He was a husband. He was a father. He was a reformer. He was a pastor. He was a theologian. He was a preacher. But first and foremost, he was a man gripped by a the passion for the majesty of God and what it unleashed in the world. Not even kidding is an unquenchable zeal for the glory of God and a desire to spread that glory even to the very ends of the earth. And the life, ministry, the teaching, the legacy of John Calvin is exactly where we're going this morning. Because you know this week, this month is Reformation Month, which means that we are celebrating what's known as the Protestant Reformation, which means 500 and now five years ago, we are celebrating when the lamp of the gospel of sovereign grace was relit after centuries of darkness. When the gospel was rediscovered amidst the rubble of a thousand years of man-made traditions and superstitious beliefs. I mean one of the most triumphant and significant moments, not only in church history, but even in human history. That's the Reformation. And while lots of people added their own fuel to the fire of Reformation, almost no one could top the buckets of gasoline heaped onto those fires than John Calvin himself. 
And the reason why we're doing this, the reason why we're talking about the Reformation and Martin Luther and John Calvin and William Tyndale next week, the reason why we are is because I'll have you know, the Reformation, it ain't over. Not even close. Not, not by a long shot. It is now in our hands as a generation of new reformers. It is now in our hands to keep the lamp of the gospel of grace always burning in the darkness. You understand this isn't just a bunch of historical dates or inspirational stories that you can take or leave. Rather, what this is, I want this sermon series to be a fork in the road for you. What this is, is an urgent call for you to join the long line of men and women who gave everything so that the gospel could reach every tribe and tongue and nation and people because that is what the Reformation is. Because they say, don't they? They say that to forget history is to be doomed to repeat it. But I say that if we forget the history of the Reformation, we'll be doomed precisely because we don't repeat it. This morning we examine the life, the legacy, the theology, the ministry of John Calvin, not to exalt John Calvin the man, but to exalt the God of John Calvin. Because if we see in the Bible what John Calvin saw in the Bible, the more courage we will have for the mission to which we are called. Because I'll just tell you, in our media-saturated, inch-deep, mile-wide, Disneyland of Christianity, we desperately need to hear the resounding voice of John Calvin and his soul-paralyzing vision for the majesty of God. I'm not saying you have to like John Calvin, although I'm persuaded that you will. I'm just saying that a man with this kind of reverence for the word of God that he had, a man who had a stunning vision of a glorious God with an unstoppable sovereign purpose in the universe like he had, I'm just saying that is worthy of our emulation. So here we go. This morning I want you to see the life, the ministry, the legacy of John Calvin unfolding in three parts. One, I want to unfold again a brief history of the Reformation and the strategic role of John Calvin in it. Number two, I want to give you an abbreviated biography of Calvin's life to see the ripple effects of a man who can still be felt even to this very day. And then number three, I want to look at three chain reactions that the majesty of God had on John Calvin's life and why we would do well to imitate. So here we go, part one. Part one, a brief history of the Reformation and the role of John Calvin in it. A brief history of the Reformation. Because as I said last week, the Reformation was not only a single act led only by one man. Rather, what the Reformation was, you understand, was a revolution. A God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated revolution to bring the entirety of Christianity under the supreme authority of the Word of God. Because again, for a thousand years, you need to understand that the, the spiritual darkness personified the Catholic Church. The Bible was a closed book. Spiritual ignorance ruled in the minds of the people. The gospel was perverted. Church tradition trumped divine truth. Personal holiness had been abandoned. 
The rotten stench of man-made traditions covered pope and priest alike. But you know, you know, everything changed on October 31st, 1517, when Luther hammered onto the Wittenberg church doors, a document that exposed some of the most tragic corruptions of the Catholic church. And in that moment, everything changed. Why? Because Luther discovered through his meticulous and and rigorous study of the word of God that so much of what the Roman Catholic Church had taught for centuries was not only not in the text, it was against the text. I said it last week, for 10 long centuries, Europe shivered in the cold shadow of a Roman Catholic theology that taught that although salvation was purchased by Christ, it was earned. By your works. Which means the darkness of the dark ages was the disappearance of the doctrine that salvation was by God's sovereign grace alone. And if you really, I mean, you really boil down what was the bird of the reformer's saddle. What really was the bee in the reformer's bonnet, if you will? The issue was, at the end of the day, it was about, it was all about the glory of God. Do you know that? I mean, the issue for the reformers was not first justification, or priestly abuses, or transubstantiation, or prayers to the saints, or papal authority, or the worship of Mary, although all those things are terrible and heretical and need to be rebuked. The issue at the end of the day for the reformers was the beauty and the worth and the majesty of God, which had all been but extinguished in Europe. And you see that right there more than anything else defined the Reformation, defined John Calvin's life, namely the matchless worth and beauty of God displayed through rigorous, passionate proclamation of the word of God. And as I said, Calvin certainly didn't start the Reformation, but he did pour gasoline on the fire. Very combustible theological gasoline that pushed the Reformation to the point, get this, where it gave birth even to the very modern missions movement itself. Did you know that? As you might have guessed, Calvin certainly had his friends, he had his fans. And he had his foes. Martin Luther, who was 26 years older than Calvin, stood in awe of him. Philip Melanchthon, who was Luther's pastoral assistant, simply called him the theologian, which means he was the best. Benjamin Warfield, one of the most renowned scholars in the 1800s, said that no one had a more profound sense of God than John Calvin. One French theologian of the 20th century in a very bold way says this. He says, I have been converted through the reading of John Calvin. For I have learned from reading him, get this, that all the worries about health and the uncertain future which had hitherto dominated my life were without much importance and that the only things that counted were obedience to the will of God and care for his glory. Charles Spurgeon, who would have never said it if he didn't mean it, said, 
Calvin propounded truth more clearly than any other man that ever breathed, knew more of Scripture, and explained it more clearly than anyone in history outside Christ and the apostles. One author even said, apart from the biblical authors themselves, Calvin stands as the most influential minister of the word the world has ever seen. Now, whether you agree with that or not remains to be seen. Others have been less complimentary. In fact, fewer people in church history have more enemies than John Calvin. For instance, if you search John Calvin on YouTube, you'll find all sorts of unsubtle, unflattering titles like How to Defeat Calvinism or Why I'm Not a Five-Point Calvinist, or Burn in Hell, John Calvin, Burn in Hell, seriously, or Sovereign Grace is a Heresy. One writer from the 1950s called Calvin withdrawn, embittered, an unfeeling and sick man, and a dictator. Oscar Pfister, who was a friend of Sigmund Freud, which immediately cancels him out, said that Calvin was a, was a compulsive neurotic with diabolical traits. Even in his own day, a former reformer who recanted his faith and went back to the Catholic Church called him ambitious, presumptuous, arrogant, and cruel. He said that Calvin was a greedy man and an imposter who claimed that he could resurrect the dead and that he was a sodomite and an outcast of God. That's pretty cutthroat stuff right there. And yet, I think these people are missing something. In fact, I know they are. I know they are because there is a reason why people read Calvin's writings more than any other Christian outside the New Testament. His commentaries. His commentaries are a verse-by-verse shopping spree of the endless treasures of Holy Scripture. His most famous theology book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, remains to this day probably the best book of theology ever written in history. His sermons. This guy did expository verse-by-verse preaching before it was cool, and his preaching of the text straight from the Hebrew and Greek, by the way, simply unleashed a movement of God, the ripple effects we still feel even at this very moment. And so I guess you could say that this man has made an impression not just on me, but on the entirety of Western civilization itself. And I believe that once we get to know the man, that we will be filled with humble admiration because I believe that you'll find his passion for the unrivaled supremacy of God to be irresistibly contagious. Which brings us to part two. Part two, an abbreviated biography of John Calvin. An abbreviated biography of John Calvin, who I call the theologian of glory. Theologian of glory. You know, the Europe into which John Calvin was born was nothing short of barbaric and brutal. The the planet was not a a pleasant place to live in those days. There was no sewer system, no piped water, no central heating, no refrigeration, no electric lights, no water heaters, no washers, no dryers, no stoves, no ballpoint pens, no computers, no motors of any kind. Life was brutal and it was harsh and not only was it brutal and harsh, it was violent and immoral. And into this bleak world, John Calvin emerged on July 10th, 1509 in Noyon, France, which is about 71 miles north of Paris. In that day, America wasn't a thing. The Pope ruled the roost. 
Martin Luther was still about six years away from making his grand rediscovery of the gospel. And the funny thing about John Calvin's life is that, is that it's not the stuff that biographies are made of. Like at first glance, when you look at his life, it's not the stuff of high drama. It's not anything you write books about. He, he did really kind of mundane weekly things. He shepherded a flock. He preached sermons. He wrote books. He defended the gospel. He trained pastors. You see, there's nothing to see here. Wash, rinse, and repeat. And yet, and yet, those very basic pastoral activities, him doing theology in the trenches of local church ministry was the very thing God used to change even the face of human history. Which speaks, of course, not to the power of the man, but the power of the word of God through the man, does it not? And we know virtually nothing about his childhood, what cartoons he watched, what his favorite food was, the name of the girl he took to the prom, we don't know any of that. But what we do know is that when he was 14, his father, fairly bossy and strict, sent him to the University of Paris to study theology, to become a priest, which at that time was totally untouched by the Reformation. It was steeped in medieval Catholic Roman theology. Five years later, we have no idea why. At the age of 19, his father was offended and disgruntled by the Roman Catholic Church and told his son to leave theology and study law and become a lawyer, which he obediently did. And he served as a lawyer for the next three years in Orleans and Bourget. And yet, to the great chagrin of, of Paul Johnson, it was not law but literature that was his first love. Keep in mind, Calvin is not converted. He, he's not a Christian in any sense of the term. He is a fairly nominal Roman Catholic with all of its polluted trappings and its theology, and what this man loved was literature. He became an expert in Greek. He mastered philosophy. Uh, the great classics of literature at that time had stolen his affections. Seneca and Plato and Aristotle, the Iliad, the Odyssey. And so when his father died in 1531, Calvin, at the age of 21, quit his law practice and became a scholar of literature, secular scholar of secular literature, living the professor's dream, teaching classes, summers off, writing books, hoping to make tenure as a professor, when all of a sudden, John Calvin and the Reformation collided together. All of a sudden, the shockwaves of the Reformation reached him in France, and what he heard, he did not like. In fact, he hated what he heard, at least at first. Seven years after his conversion, he said this about his encounter with the Reformation and with the doctrines of grace in particular. Listen to what he said. He said, essentially, there I was minding my own business as a good nominal Roman Catholic when all of a sudden, quote, a very different form of doctrine started up. Not one which led us away from the Christian profession, but one which brought it back to its fountain, to its original purity. At first I was offended by the novelty, and yet I lent an unwilling ear, and at first I confess, strenuously and passionately resisted to confess that my whole life long I had been in ignorance and in error. I at length at last perceived, get this, as if light had broken in upon my soul, 
What a sty of error in which I had wallowed, and how much pollution and impurity I had thereby contracted. Being exceedingly alarmed at the misery into which I had fallen, I made it my first business to betake myself to your way, O God, condemning my past life, but not without groans and tears. You know what that is? That was his regeneration and his subsequent repentance. He goes on. God, listen carefully to his language. God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame, having thus received some taste and knowledge of true godliness, I was immediately inflamed with an intense desire to make progress in my life and in the doctrines which I had at first so passionately resisted. That's incredible. Do you hear this? The, the diagnosis of the conversion of his own soul was that God supernaturally broke into him with divine and supernatural light, which subdued his will and transformed his affections. Do you know what that's called? That's called regeneration. That's called being born again. What that's called is irresistible grace. And so I find it ironic and hilarious, don't you? That the very doctrines with which Calvin most came to be known and hated were the very doctrines that he himself hated the most before his own conversion. Doctrines like unconditional election, in particular atonement and irresistible grace. So sometime between 1531 and 1533, Calvin crossed the line, and not only did he get saved, but he became a reformer, which in those days were one and the same thing. And here's how it happens. It's, the details are scant, but here's what we know. Calvin, he's a, university at the university, he's a professor at the University of Paris. And in November, the rector of the university, a man named Nicholas Kopp, who's a close friend of Calvin, sort of the dean of students, he preaches this opening sermon at the winter semester to the students. And the sermon that he preached to the students, this man, Nicholas Kopp, who, who was a friend of, of Calvin, was so Luther-like and so Reformation-sounding, and people got so offended and so riled up that the parliament of the city, even the king of France himself got involved. And they issued an, an arrest warrant, and guess whose name was on the warrant? Nicholas Kopp and John Calvin who didn't preach the sermon, but people suspect that he wrote the sermon. And all of a sudden it became violent. They had to flee the city, even in the entire country, to escape prison and probably a violent execution. And so sometime between 1531 and 1533, Calvin became fully devoted to the cause of the Reformation, all because, all because the word of God broke into his heart with divine and supernatural light. And you see this experience with the word of God, beholding the majesty of God in the pages of scripture is what set the trajectory for his life until his death. And what it unleashed in Calvin's life was not merely a focus on preaching, but rather an unshakable conviction that the word of God is the instrument of God to break open the world. And I hope you believe that. I hope you believe like Calvin, 
that the word of God is the most lethal instrument of change known to man. I hope you believe, like Calvin, that if you want to hear God speak, that all you need to do is read Holy Scripture. I hope you believe, like Calvin, that we owe to Scripture the same reverence that we owe to God because it proceeds forth from Him and there is nothing of man mixed in it. I hope you believe that all the hope and the power you need for the deepest complexities of the soul are found within the sacred text of Holy Scripture, not because it's a book of spells or incantations, but because it is an encounter with the living God through the words on the page. It's not to guilt you, but to entice you. What is your relationship to Holy Scripture right now? Do you have it? Do you have that IV drip line connection to the word of God where you are always nourished and watered by the word? Is it for you like Psalm 1 speaks of your meditation day and night? Because I'll just tell you, things happen. Things happen when we get the word of God absorbed into the bloodstream of our soul. All the joyful thriving and victory over those nagging hard-to-reach sins that never seem to go away are found precisely in the sacred text of Holy Scripture. That's what it means to be a reformer. So here's Calvin on the run like some bandit like some refugee because that's exactly what he is and in his exile out of France he flees to Basel, Switzerland. Basel, Switzerland. Now his plan, he's got a wonderful plan for his life. His plan for his own life is to be a literary scholar of theology. He's got a big brain. He's a good thinker. He's a good writer. And he feels that his best contribution, the most effective way that he can be used for the cause of the Reformation is quietly behind the scenes writing books of theology in an office. And in those three years of deportation to Switzerland, two remarkable things happened to him. So remarkable, in fact, that we still feel the effects of these things to this very day. Number one, as a refugee seeking religious asylum in Basel, Switzerland, guess what he did in his spare time? You'll never guess. He learned Hebrew. That's what he did. On the run, price on his head, target from on his chest, exiled out of his own country, and he learns Hebrew. Who does that? Why would he do that? Because he understood that the handling of the Word of God is the most sacred occupation on the planet. And if you're going to preach it, you do so with power and laser-like precision. Number two. Number two, in 1536, this other remarkable thing in Switzerland that happened. In 1536, he wrote the first edition of his book called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. At the age of 26, by the way. I don't know what you were doing at the age of 26, but I was not writing soul-stirring books of theology that are so stinking good that people will read them 500 years after you're dead. And yet, what is this book? It's a theology book, so what? Well, it is a theology book, and a thick one to be sure, but not just that. Because you understand 
Calvin wrote this book with blood on his hands. I want you to listen to the reason why he wrote this near thousand page book of theology. Listen very carefully to what drove him to write this. He said, but lo, while I lay hidden at Basel and known only to a few people, many faithful and holy persons were burnt alive in France. It appeared to me that unless I opposed the perpetrators to the utmost of my ability, my silence could not be vindicated from the charge of cowardice and treachery. This was the consideration. People burned alive in France. This was the consideration that drove me to publish my Institutes of the Christian Religion. Listen carefully. It was published with no other design that, that men might know what was the faith held by those whom I saw so basely and wickedly defamed. Do you hear the reason why he wrote this book? This book was forged in the fires of burning flesh. He wrote this thousand-page book of theology as his attempt to explain why what we believe is worth fighting and why it is worth dying for. So here's Calvin, intent on living his life in the quiet confines of a scholar, writing books, keeping his hands clean, he, and, and you understand, he never went back to France, never, ever went back to his home. He was too Catholic, too hostile to the gospel, to the Reformation. And so he's going to spend, his goal, his plan for his life is he's going to spend the rest of his life in Strasbourg, which is 84 miles north of Basel, doing his literary thing as a theologian, or so he thought. T.H.L. Parker, one of Calvin's biographers, said this, Unencumbered by parochial or civic affairs... Calvin would pursue the, his career as a writer. His desires were those of a scholar. Listen to what he says. Irresponsible in their simplicity and humbly arrogant. Enough money to live on without anxiety, a good library, and a peaceful life. The summit of my wishes, he quotes Calvin, was the enjoyment of literary ease with something of a free and honorable Station. He wanted a life of comfort and ease, but a life of comfort and ease was not to be for him. Because what happened to Calvin next is one of those dramatic reminders to us of how much it is that God loves us. When we make little plans for our lives, Calvin wants to go to Strasbourg. The problem is a war breaks out. And he gets detoured 157 miles the opposite way into a city called Geneva. Geneva. And he's there, kind of hanging out, staying in Airbnb, waiting for things to blow over. And the very next day, his bags are packed. The very next, uh, the, the day before he leaves, a man named William Farrell, who was the reformer of that city, hears that Calvin is in the city, finds him, tracks him down, and pays Calvin a little visit. And this little visit not only changed Calvin's life, it not only changed the, the scene of history for Geneva, it, it even changed the course of the history of the world. I'm not even kidding. What was about to happen in Geneva is partly responsible for why you believe in Christ this very day. 
Eventually, if you trace it back far enough, your faith is the result of the kind of explosive gospel impact that is about to happen in Geneva. Because here's Calvin, bags packed, ready to pursue his cush life of study in Strasbourg when Farrell knocks at the door. And what Farrell gave Calvin to stay was not so much a sales pitch as it was a threat. A warning to Calvin that if he didn't stay in Geneva and shepherd the flock and preach the word of God to hundreds of French refugees who fled to Geneva, that God was going to curse his cushy, mushy, academic life of writing books and scholarship. And Calvin said this about that conversation years later. He said, Pharaoh, who burned with an extraordinary zeal for the gospel, immediately learned that my heart was set upon devoting myself to private studies for which I keep, wish to keep myself free from other pursuits. And finding that he gained nothing by polite entreaties, he proceeded to utter an imprecation that God would curse my retirement and the tranquility of my studies which I sought if I should withdraw and refuse to give assistance when the necessity was so urgent, by this imprecation I was so stricken with terror that I desisted from the journey which I had once undertaken. Well, that's one way to persuade someone. He unpacked his bags and he stayed. And never once ever again did he ever say a word about pursuing his literary life. Rather, get this, every page of the 48 volumes of Calvin's books and tracts and sermons and commentaries and letters that he wrote were churned out in the bloody trenches of local church ministry. And I spend so much time talking about this moment here as a reminder to us of just how much it is that God loves us. I mean, how many times do we make some half-baked, moderately selfish, presumptuous plan for our lives, and when it doesn't work out, our first instinct is to grumble against God as if his only ambition was to ruin our day? God was in that passing moment in Calvin's life when he decided to be an author living in seclusion. God derailed his self-centered little plan to be a scholar because there were hundreds of people in Geneva who needed a pastor and a shepherd to preach the word of God to them. And the ripple effects of that ministry in Geneva literally led to the salvation of millions of millions. How can it be that God in his love would give a twinge of care about those little incidental mundane moments of our lives? Just one moment, one hour, one day, one week, and one month, in one year, in one neighborhood, in one home, in one family, in just one passing moment of time, in God, in the glory of his love, is there in that moment, moving for his glory. The point is, 
Don't interpret what God is like by how you feel in your circumstances. But see who God is by his sovereign love which governs everything that comes to pass. And the sovereign love of God was a repeated theme of Calvin's life. One example of that, two weeks after his baby son died in 1542, he wrote to his friend Veret. He said, the Lord has certainly inflicted a severe and bitter wound. The Lord has inflicted, he has inflicted a severe and bitter wound in the death of our baby boy. But he himself is a father and knows best what is good for his children. That's the theme of Calvin's life. A very badly needed theme in 21st century America, namely that sweet submission to the sovereign hand of God over every single moment of our lives. Calvin stayed in Geneva. He had to leave for a little while by force, but he came back and he labored in that church until the day of his death at the age of 55 in 1564. And it was hard, and it was brutal, and it was exciting, and it was dramatic, and it was dangerous, and it was painful, and it was agonizing, and it was beautiful. His wife, Idolette, died in 1549 of tuberculosis. Some of his children died. He suffered from crippling migraines, which can only be managed by a strict one meal a day. He ate once a day, very thin, very gaunt. He had colic so bad that he would constantly spit up blood. He had malaria multiple times. He had arthritis in his feet hemorrhoids and kidney stones that were so bad that they would cut him open from the inside out, if you know what I mean. And all of this without the slightest pain, of, the slightest bit of pain medication, none of the modern medical advances, not even ibuprofen for crying out loud. And these sufferings would be one thing to endure if everybody loved him, but such was not the case. For his preaching, for his doctrine, there was constant harassment, insults, kind of like today, Threats, mobs would barricade his door, saying, you come out of your house, we're going to throw you into the river. And they were serious. People would come in the front of his house in the middle of the night and fire muskets in front of his house. The ultra-liberals of the city were a constant thorn in his flesh, always trying to control the way that he did church, threatening him with penalties and punishments if he didn't do what they asked him to do. Sounds familiar. I mean, this is incredible, a never-ending pressure from every single possible angle. And on top of that, he had very little regard for his own health. After his wife died, he pushed himself to the health-cracking rigors of severity. Sleeping two, three, maybe four hours of sleep a night. He was always a bow, tightly strung. He never stopped laboring. He preached ten times a week. Lectured three times at the seminary visited the sick, discipled people every day, wrote letters every week to persecuted believers in France. And on top of that, he was writing books and sermons and commentaries that people still read 500 years later. This man was the essence of productivity and it killed him. No wonder he died at 55 years old. And yet it is as they say, the light that burns twice as bright as the light that burns half as long. And oh, what a light John Calvin was. You understand the heat from his 
light we still feel even to this very day. See, here's the thing. What it was that produced in this man that invincible constancy, that lion-hearted courage, that rugged perseverance that kept him going through crippling pain and hostile persecution, what it was that sustained him was that, was that, that vision, that, that jaw-dropping vision of the majesty of God he saw in the pages of Holy Scripture. And what it unleashed in his life was three things, three things, and I'm closing with this, three things that the majesty of God in Scripture unleashed in his life that we would do well to imitate. Number one, number one, the majesty of God that he saw in Scripture unleashed in him a passion to preach the word of God. The majesty of God unleashed in him a passion to preach the word of God. You see, every single thing Calvin did was an exposition of Scripture. Why? Because he rightly understood. He understood that the secret, the secret to a thriving soul is not to think less deep about God, but to push ourselves deeper than ever in the sacred text into who God is. He understood that to see God is to be transformed by God. That if you want to see your sin as repugnant, that you must see Christ as magnificent. And the only way to see the magnificence of Jesus Christ is in the word alone. Listen to how he challenged the pastors of his own day. And pastors today would do well to listen carefully. He said, let the pastors boldly dare all things by the word of God. Let them constrain all power and glory and excellence of the world to give place to and to obey the divine majesty of this word. Let them edify the body of Christ. Let them devastate Satan's reign. Let them pasture the sheep, kill the wolves, instruct the rebellious. Let them bind and loose thunder and lightning if need be, but let them do it all by the ministry of the Word of God. Number two. Number two, the majesty of God in the pages of Scripture unleashed in Calvin a passion for training men. A passion for training men, pastors, missionaries, theologians, and yes, martyrs. Training men, don't worry, he trained women too. He pastored the whole flock and he did it exceptionally well. But hard and bloody though it was, Calvin rightly understood that one of the indispensable ways that Christ builds his church is through the training of pastors and missionaries and then sending them behind enemy lines to proclaim the word, who plant churches who then go on to do the same. So in 1558, he started a rigorous theological training academy in which he would train pastors and theologians, many of whom became martyrs, so many martyrs, in fact, that his school became known as the school of death. Why don't we start that? Why don't we start a, ministry, a school of death, training pastors and theologians and evangelists and teachers and missionaries? Because you know, you know we have a 20-year plan, Right? And on the list is to start a pastoral ministry training program just like Calvin, not because he did it, but because training pastors and missionaries in the local church is how the Great Commission is going to get done. 
Number three, then we're done. The majesty of God in the pages of Scripture unleashed in Calvin a global missionary vision to reach the ends of the earth with the gospel, which surprises most people. That Calvin cared about evangelism, that he cared about missions, that he cared about the nations, and yet it doesn't surprise me at all. Because the greater your commitment is to preach the word of God, the more committed you will be to proclaim it to the nations. But you see, people just assume that because Calvin is a Calvinist, whatever that means, that because he loved election and particular atonement, that surely Calvin had no zeal for the global cause of Christ. For instance, one church historian without a shred of reality said this. He said, we miss in the reformers not only missionary action, but even the idea of missions. Why? Because the fundamental theological views of the doctrines of grace hindered them from giving their activity and even their thoughts a missionary direction, which is insanely erroneous. Another writer for a major Christian denomination, popular in this part of the country, said, Calvin's doctrine is logically anti-missionary and renders the Great Commission meaningless. Even a friend of mine, who I appreciate deeply, who was a former missionary to Kenya years ago back in, back in Washington, I asked him to teach a church history class, and he refused to teach on the Reformation because, as he put it, the Reformers and the Reformation didn't do a thing for world missions for 200 years, and foolishly, I believed him. Because I didn't know, and he didn't know, and most people do not know that Geneva, Switzerland in Calvin's day was a launch site for global ministry. I mean, Calvin is no stay-at-home theologian here. He was, by his own writings and by his own missionary activity, profoundly pro-missions and pro-evangelism. Think about it. Think about it. Calvin wasn't Swiss. He was French. He lived in a foreign country, ministered in a foreign country, pastored a church in a foreign country, trained pastors to go into foreign countries and to become martyrs. I think we call that missions, do we not? In fact, most people have no idea that Calvin had a vision to reach Brazil, Brazil with the gospel. That was his aim. Through no fault of his own, it didn't work out, but for years, trying, Calvin was trying to orchestrate and send dozens of people from Geneva to Brazil to plant churches and reach God's elect with, through the proclamation of the gospel. You see, you have to understand that Calvin was passionate about missions, not despite his theology, but precisely because of his theology. He understood that God has his elect in every tribe and tongue and nation and people, and all we've got to do is go out there and find them by indiscriminately preaching the gospel to And you have to understand is that the theology of Calvin is what gave birth to the very modern missions movement itself. William Carey to India. Henry Martin to Persia. Adoniram Judson to Burma. 
Jonathan Edwards, David Brainerd, and the Great Awakening of the 18th century, all of it kindled by a majestic vision of God that Calvin preached from the Bible week after week after week for decades. In fact, if it doesn't have the doctrine of Calvin behind it, it will fizzle, to be sure. So the lesson here, and I close with this, the lesson here, Christ community, from Calvin is that if we want our church to be everything we ever dreamed it could be in our wildest imaginations, we must give the word of God the supreme and central place in our life and in our affections and in our church. I want this church to be a haven-creating vessels not for the cushy yacht life of American luxury, but battleships armed with the gospel who venture out into the storm-tossed, shark-infested ocean of humanity. And I believe that if we place all of the eggs of our hope into the basket of the power of God's word, that's exactly what we're going to be because that's what reformers do. And we are the new reformers. Lord, we're grateful for this man who is just a man, a sinner who needed to be saved by grace just like us, and yet a man that you used whose preaching and life and ministry and counsel and shepherding and pastoral wisdom you used to lead to the salvation of millions. And Lord, I, I'm not... I'm not concerned about whether people ever read Calvin in their lives. I'm not concerned whether anyone in this church even likes him or not. All I want, O oh Lord, is that they would love the God of John Calvin and the word that John Calvin preached. Help us, Lord. Help us to, uh, to cling so tightly to the power of your word that we might see your glory displayed in and through this church. And it's in the mighty name of Christ that we pray.